Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. The iCritical Care Podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is the Society's Associate Editor for Podcasts, Dr. Richard Savell. Dr. Savell is the Associate Director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Maimonides Medical Center in Brooklyn, New York. He also is an Assistant Professor of Medicine at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care Podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email info at sccm.org. Hello and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast for Thursday, October 13th, 2005. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Savell. In this edition of the podcast, we will talk with Dr. Scott Dolchevsky, MD-PhD, FCCM, one of the seven keynote presenters scheduled to speak at the Society's 35th Critical Care Congress in San Francisco, California, January 7th to 11th, 2006. Dr. Dolchevsky is a professor of surgery, molecular biology, and genetics at the Wayne State University School of Medicine. He is also the chairman of the Department of Surgery at the Henry Ford Health System and a lead scientist at the NASA Johnson Space Center Advanced Diagnostic Ultrasound in Microgravity. Recently, Dr. Dolchevsky has focused his interests on the challenges of critical care in outer space, a topic he will address during his keynote presentation at the 2006 Congress entitled Critical Care in Space at Mach 25. Today, he will share his unique and fascinating perspectives with us on the iCritical Care podcast. Uh, good afternoon, Scott. Uh, good afternoon, Richard. Um, well, thank you again so much for spending a little time on this uh, new new entity, the Critical Care Podcast, and I wanted to start out discussing uh, your background. I've tried to do my homework on this, and from what I can I can gather, you uh, you became fully trained in surgery, were already a professor, and then uh, decided to go back and get your PhD in, in molecular genetics. Currently, you are a uh, department chair. You uh, have your own basic science lab. And you're working with NASA on space uh, and telemedicine. And I was wondering if you could sort of tell us a little bit about your unique uh, career trajectory and all of that. Seems like I can't keep a job, eh? Uh, it's been a it's been a fun ride, and I think uh, it's important to be uh, flexible in your uh, ultimate uh, career plans. It might seem that it'd be uh, unusual for a chief of surgery at a major trauma hospital to decide to go back and get a Ph.D., but uh, I thought with the progress that's been made uh, in molecular biology and genetics to truly try and do uh, bench research, uh, it's very challenging without a, without a good background. And the only way I could force myself to, to get that background, not haphazardly, was to enroll fully in a Ph.D. program. And I think the great part about that was uh, it brought together people who would not normally be in the same room. So clinicians who really understand uh, a problem alongside of folks who are at the cutting edge of uh, research technologies. And then I could say, hey, do you folks have a way to look at this? And they could help me. Alternatively, they might have a technique that they had no idea on the clinical uh, applicability, and I could, I could help them with that. 
uh, and I guess you had a supportive, uh, both a personal and academic environment that would allow you to, to do something as unique as that? Uh, absolutely. It's obviously tough uh, on the family uh, as well as uh, in trying to maintain a full clinical practice. So both my partner at work as well as at home were, were very supportive in that. And uh, I extended the timeline a bit to allow me to do that uh, in a in a not killing fashion. And um, I, I was wondering, uh, so you got your Ph.D., and from what I understand, your, your Ph.D. or your, your current basic science research is on wound healing. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how that transitioned into your current area of expertise uh, with NASA and space medicine and all of that. Uh, sure. And uh, although they're not directly uh, applicable, there, there is uh, some overlap. I think uh, no matter what uh, scientific discipline you're uh, Im immersed in, you learn uh, basic research tenets about how experimental design and anticipated and unanticipated results, statistical analysis, and, and then uh, publication, publication avenues. And uh, we fell into the uh, gene therapy of wound healing because we were having such a clinical dilemma with burn patients and with uh, compromised patients and, and problematic wounds. And although that doesn't have a, a great uh, application for uh, the space environment, it certainly does for everyday practice on the earth and I guess on battlefields and, and everyday, everyday right, care. Right, of course. The, uh, the space thing was uh, sort of initially started off uh, as, as a bit of a lark. Uh, one of my uh, classmates in medical school was uh, an astronaut. He was uh, Jerry Leninger, happened to be the fella unlucky enough to be on space station Mir when they had the, uh, had the fire. And about uh, 10 years ago, he invited me down to the Johnson Space Center as a practicing uh, emergency uh, trauma surgeon to try and uh, co-opt what we do every day in our uh, critical care and uh, emergency and operating rooms for use for uh, exploratory class uh, space flight. And uh, subsequent to that, I got involved, again, in unusual circles that a, a surgeon wouldn't normally be in with mechanical engineers and and uh, astronauts and geophysicists in that, but with the same basic basic problems where they had some unique challenges. Uh, we had some relatively simple solutions that would work uh, on the planet, but uh, modifying those for use in a very austere uh, environment has been my challenge for the last, uh, last 10 years or so. And... Um uh, a couple of the other questions I had. The first was, um, at, at this point, are your basic science uh, research interests and this uh, focus with NASA are those related at all at this point, or or no, you know, no, they're, at this point? no, they're not. They're they're funded separately. We have uh, NIH support for the uh, for the basic science work, and we're funded through NASA in terms of flight grants as well as the National Space Biomedical Research Institute uh, to look at these more clinically or operationally relevant uh, problems. And then I guess I'd like to take the focus of the interview to talk a little bit about, a little bit more to get the uh, listeners uh, some understanding uh, of some of the, the challenges uh, of diagnosis in space, uh, up on the space uh, station. And uh, these are, I know, some of your areas of interest, and I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about some of those. Sure, absolutely. And, and uh, 
uh, my role at, at NASA is primarily as a researcher to uh, investigate and modify the techniques uh, for use uh, on the uh, shuttle and on the, the space station. There's a whole cadre of uh, flight surgeons uh, down at the Johnson Space Center and actually across the world now since we're also utilizing uh, Russian facilities to do the day-to-day training of the astronaut crews in emergency medical procedures as well as support them should they have a, a primary uh, primary medical event. Uh, it, it's an intriguing problem. So you start off with a uh, very healthy uh, astronaut corps that has been uh, screened like crazy. So the chances of them developing an acute medical event aren't huge. However, uh, it, some of those would be catastrophic. Take a right. appendicitis or acute cholecystitis. Then you, you put in the, to the uh, equation the variables of space, so your prolonged weightlessness that causes some alterations in metabolism, in autonomic uh, function, in calcium metabolism, making you more prone to kidney stones, to bone and muscle uh, wasting, and then finally radiation and other space hazards associated with a, with a zero-gravity uh, environment. Now, the, the medical problems uh, heretofore have been pretty catastrophic. Uh, the Challenger in Columbia, uh, which, where medical support wasn't, uh, wasn't really an, an option or, in that, but now more, uh, more nowadays, where we're having longer duration space flights, the crew uh, on the International Space Station, Space Station right now has been up for five months, so as we extend that, or if we start to plan on going back to the moon and Mars in the future, the chances of us developing an acute medical event increase significantly. We have to be able to, to take care of those. And I would imagine, um, and I guess we'll focus on, on the sonography issues next, but I, I would imagine not knowing a lot about this, the question is, is diagnosis and then some stabilization, and if the person or astronaut needs to be returned back to Earth, I would imagine that would be some of the challenges as well versus uh, doing uh, something in space. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a great point, Richard. Well, one, one of the first uh, challenges is we don't normally have a physician uh, on board. So uh, it, there are a couple of active uh, physicians who are in the astronaut corps. They are few and far between. So we are teaching a geophysicist, an electrical engineer, perhaps a fighter pilot, uh, how to provide uh, on-scene medical care. So they get 40 to 70 hours uh, of training with the flight surgeons, and that is the onboard medical uh, expertise. They are in contact about a third of the time with the ground, so with some telemedicine we can get rudimentary information, but diagnosis is, is a big challenge. Then uh, a decision has to be made by the flight surgeons uh, taking into account the information they can get on whether we stand and fight or uh, come home. Now, if it's uh, uh, on shuttle, you can deorbit and be at a medical facility in 8 to 12 hours. If we're on the space station, uh, that might be two days. It might be pulling uh, eight times the force of gravity, uh, landing hard in Kazakhstan, uh, and an evacuation at 12 to 24 hours. So that's not optimal for the care of uh, an acutely sick or, or injured individual. So capabilities have to be uh, built in place uh, on, on the station. Finally, if you're halfway to Mars, it's a four- to eight-month trip to get back, so obviously we have to have some on-site capabilities. It's one of the fundamental limitations of, 
of space travel outside of Earth orbit is the, the ability to provide health care. Uh, absolutely, and uh, a constraint to telemedicine. It could take as, as long as 30 to 40 minutes each way uh, for the transmission to occur. So obviously you can't talk somebody through the eye of a needle. Wow. Um, and so uh, I was wondering, uh, with all of that as the background, um, why don't you tell us some of the specifics of, of what uh, your research is and uh, tell us maybe some details. W what is it like? How do, you, how do you work with NASA? How do you communicate with the astronauts? Uh, give us a sense of some of that if you can. Sure. I think the easiest way to do that would be to highlight our recent uh, flight proposal that we're just uh, finishing up over the next couple of months. It's called ADAM, the Advanced Diagnostic Ultrasound in Microgravity Proposal. And what uh, this does is utilizes an ultrasound unit, which is currently in the uh, Human Research Facility on the International Space Station, uh, to diagnose a variety of ailments that you might use CT, MRI, or uh, a routine x-ray uh, on the planet. NASA asked me about eight years ago whether we could use ultrasound to diagnose a, a pneumothorax, and I hadn't really thought of that before that time, but they don't have a, an X-ray or a CT scan uh, in the, the current space uh, flight uh, queue, and yet they have some risks of developing uh, a pneumothorax because of all of the spacewalks. They have to depressurize and, and repressurize. And they so it's certainly something that could happen and something that, if it weren't treated, would be very, very... Could, could be catastrophic, right. okay, absolutely. Now, they do have a stethoscope on board, but remember, it may be a fighter pilot driving that, and there's a lot of fans on board, so it's pretty loud in, in that. So uh, we looked uh, at utilizing ultrasound to diagnose that. Lo and behold, it worked uh, darn well uh, on the Earth. We've uh, written that up a number of times, and now a variety of investigators are doing that routinely. There also has been uh, literature uh, from the critical care investigators that showing that that also works in, the, in a critical care physician's hands. So then I was faced with uh, training the astronauts on how to do that, and we developed a multimedia way to do that. And now we've gotten diagnostic quality uh, pictures from the station uh, down uh, to Earth. We could use this to exclude uh, pneumothorax relatively, relatively quickly. We've then taken that and saying, okay, great, can you diagnose a broken bone with that? How about a muscle strain, appendicitis, a variety of abdominal ailments uh, in that? And uh, we feel relatively confident now that uh, for about three-quarters of the conditions that might develop during a space flight or on the ground, that we could uh, utilize an ultrasound with remote guidance and get diagnostic quality pictures uh, to a decision maker to allow them to uh, decide uh, a treatment regimen. So you're really sort of restructuring the paradigm of what a sonogram can do for a clinician, and you're doing it in a telemedicine fashion. Uh, exactly right. And I, I guess what was of surprise to me was I thought that, well, okay, for a pneumothorax, you know, I, I still like a chest x-ray, but if you don't have an x-ray machine, maybe you can use an ultrasound. But as we pressed on with this, we found, first of all, it's awfully easy to do. We've had non-physician high school students uh, do it for uh, <clears throat> in our research studies. And then we found that in some applications, it's even more accurate than, than chest x-ray for, uh, for small lesions. And so now we, we've actually incorporated that into what we do uh, on, on the Earth. And I don't know whether other applications of ultrasound will be like that, but uh, that was an intriguing finding to me. 
Well, and the other thing I was fascinated about when I was trying to learn about you was that you've taken your, your course and you've applied that locally in sports medicine as well, from right. what I understand? Yeah, th this is, again, a, an unusual turn of events. So a, a, as we were trying to uh, plan a this uh, multimedia presentation for the astronauts on board the space station, you know, it gets sort of lonely for six months, just you and a cosmonaut up there. So we were trying to make it fun. And so I approached our uh, Detroit Red Wings hockey team uh, to get some footage of those guys and ask if they would sort of play around with us with the ultrasound machine. And as we were doing that, uh, Brett Hull, one of, one of our players, said, boy, could you use that to diagnose uh, injuries in us? And uh, again, I hadn't, hadn't thought of that, so I have to give him credit. And so we put one of these in the locker room of uh, the Joe Lewis uh, Ice Arena, and mm -hmm. uh, now we have it hooked up to our hospital. So if the athletic trainer has a concern on one of the patients, uh, he can very quickly be talked through a musculoskeletal exam. It comes into uh, our radiologist here, and we can tell him uh, whether there's a significant injury or, or not. That wasn't lost on the uh, the uh, U.S. Olympic Committee, and so now we're going out and uh, outfitting uh, the Olympic training facilities with this uh, same architecture to allow us to watch our young athletes uh, as they train and uh, hopefully uh, as they compete uh, in Torino in 2006. What are some of the uh, areas of your future interests working with NASA? I thought I read that there were some other areas as well other than just sonography or where you think the sonography might be headed. Sure. Well, uh, we're really trying to take this uh, sonography to the next level to have it uh, function uh, without, uh, to make me obsolete, to have it completely uh, on-site uh, diagnostic uh, capable. So we're working on a, an ultrasound uh, catalog that could be used uh, halfway to Mars, uh, uh, ind independent of us. We're also looking at uh, micro laparoscopy using local anesthesia, putting a very tiny laparoscope in to have a peek at whether you had appendicitis, a wide variety of abdominal You mean teaching a non-medical person that or Ex doing exa it? Exactly right. Wow. And, and although the, we wouldn't pr purport to be able to have a geophysicist uh, remove your gallbladder, Certainly they could uh, visualize that there was pathology there and then put a percutaneous drain in with antibiotics to, again, temporize you to get you home or to get you through uh, a, a bad event. As and you were saying, whether or not to stand and fight or whether or exactly. not the person needs to be brought home emergently. Well, again, or even to make them more stable <laughs> to come home emergently. Perfect. Absolutely. Um, and and what is your sense of, uh, you're obviously optimistic about that uh, particular venue of research? Well, we've already uh, done some preliminary investigations uh, of this, uh, both on the ground and on the NASA Zero Gravity Research Facility, and we've done it without, we first did it with physicians, and of course it was, uh, it was easy, and uh, then we've subsequently done it with uh, people of similar training to the uh, to the astronauts, we are planning on uh, doing it with an astronaut uh, crew uh, in an experimental fashion uh, in the uh, in the next six to nine months. So yeah, I'm pretty confident. That's that incredible. Be another, That's absolutely incredible. Yeah, it's 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 been a lot of fun. Um, we've uh, we've been talking with Dr. Scott A. Dolchowski, professor of surgery, molecular biology, and genetics, Wayne State University School of Medicine and he's also the chairman of the Department of Surgery 
Henry Ford Health System and a lead scientist, NASA Johnson Space Center, Advanced Diagnostic Ultrasound and Microgravity. And um, I think we're going to be sort of heading towards the end here. I had a couple of sort of last questions is sure. what, um, if you had any final thoughts, and, and the other question I had is what would you share with other people, uh, other clinicians who might want to become involved in outer space medicine or working with NASA? Do you have to be in the military? That kind of thing. I was wondering if you could uh, talk about that a little bit. NASA is a very large organization uh, with a pretty robust uh, research uh, budget. Uh, the the current uh, flavor of NASA looks towards exploration, and so a lot of the effort is is towards new vehicle development. None, nonetheless, uh, we have to have the ability when we are looking at exploration class Mars and and Moon. Uh, being able to support uh, human life out there. So there's a variety, wide variety of, uh, of opportunities, and NASA has a wonderful website, www.nasa.gov, that you could look at for those, uh, for those opportunities. I think, though, that what has, uh, the best part of this is not that we can uh, take care of an astronaut crew uh, going halfway to Mars, but that we can take what we have learned in being able to do that and bring it back to Earth to provide care not just the sports teams, but for rural situations, for remote medicine, perhaps underserved areas as well, where you can't really get a doctor or advanced medical equipment. Uh, this is completely appropriate. So benefits right here on Earth for Absolutely. all of your research. Absolutely. Thank you so much for spending some time with us today, and we very much look forward to seeing you at Congress in January. I'm uh, looking forward to it. All right. Thank you so much. Okay. Take care. This concludes our podcast for Thursday, October 13th, 2005. Don't miss Dr. Dolchevsky's plenary speech from 8.30 to 9.10 a.m. on Wednesday, January 11, 2006, at the 35th Critical Care Congress in San Francisco, California. Look for future podcasts featuring a wide variety of information important to critical care practitioners including interviews with authors and discussions with prominent members of the critical care community. Thanks again for listening. Registration is open for SCCM's 35th Critical Care Congress. Please note the date and location change to January 7th through 11th, 2006 at the San Francisco Masconi West Convention Center. Learn innovative treatments in critical care, as well as fundamental business practices to improve your ICU environment all developed by a multi-professional team of critical care experts. Register today by speaking with a SCCM customer service representative at 1-847-827-6888 or visit www.sccm.org. Don't miss out on this unsurpassed educational opportunity in beautiful San Francisco, California.